Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll review the ginger spelt cookies and decide if it's time to bring this ancient grain into our modern kitchens, or if it's best left in the past. Then, for our pie-loving listeners, we'll introduce a cute little pie, or possibly a full-size one, using einkorn flour, sometimes called nature's original wheat. Finally, we'll don our lab coats and safety goggles as we pull into Intimidation Station and delve into the science of flour. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, it may not surprise you to know that preheated listeners have a deep connection with the Girl Scout cookie, which is just about ready this second week of March to be delivered. It also did not surprise me that there are some very strong opinions on their favorite Girl Scout cookies, so I wanted to run down a few of them. I know, so funny. And this is a post from listener Josh. Listener Josh kicked this off and His original post cracked me up because his favorite was the strawberry pinata cookie, but apparently they stopped making it around 2006. I love that almost 15 years later, here he is still bemoaning the loss of his beloved Girl Scout cookie. First of all, I've never heard of that one. No, me either. And number two is this must be why he suggested we do copycats because he's hoping we will do a homemade strawberry pinata. (laughs) Now, Samoas were one that had a huge Mm. following. A lot of people liked that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's my favorite. I enjoyed the people talking about how if you wanted to skip the Girl Scout Samoa, Keebler makes a copycat version. Oh. Actually, that was a little scary for me to find out because I'm one of those people who has Samoa as their favorite and having it limited to only once a year was a good thing for me. And now that (laughs) Uh I know this, it's a very dangerous (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I also like tagalongs. Those are the kind of caramely ones, I think. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, Andrea, they're not sold in the UK, so it's been several years since I've had them. Thin mints also. And you know, of course. you can hoard thin mints in your freezer for many months. <laughs> I originally put thin mints in my freezer as a deterrent to eating the whole box at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. But what I discovered is that thin mints are delightful frozen. <laughs> they are. It's not really a deterrent. <laughs> They don't freeze hard enough for them to be like, you know, dangerous to your teeth. (laughs) As a final nod in this thread, one thing that I found was so interesting is that listener Vicky, who was our very first non-family or friend reviewer, she's been with us from the very beginning. Love you, Vicky. She mentioned that she was an account manager for the Little Brownie Bakers for 23 years. And they were bought out by Keebler, and that gave them the rights to the recipes and, you know, just all this interesting backstory. And then Josh chimed in to let us know that his grandma also worked as an account manager for the Girl Scouts throughout the 80s and 90s in Minnesota. Maybe they're like distant relations. Well, at least distant work connections. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andrea, speaking of cookies... This week in our Bake Along, we made the double ginger spelt cookie from Dalesford Organic Farms and Cookery School. And this was a very small batch cookie, making only 10, had a very kind of 
Lilliputian. Is that how you say it? <laughs> Small? Lilliputian. I think it's Lilliputian. I believe it is Lilliputian. I believe that's a word I made you say back in January, so touche to me. Uh, Lilliputian <laughs> batch of these cookies that had brown sugar, butter, bicarb, golden syrup, milk, white spelt flour. There's our star ingredient of the month, ground ginger, and crystallized ginger chopped. Andrea, you and I are both huge fans of a ginger cookie. We were very excited going in to try our first flour power of this month. Let's hear it. How did these turn out for you? Stefan, I so enjoyed making this cookie. As I mentioned last week, I had all of the ingredients in my pantry, so that made me just jump for joy. Oh, yes. And I love the fact that it was a small batch, you know, mm -hmm. especially with a flour that was new to me and a cookie that was new to me. I thought it was just a really good idea to start off small. Okay. I did follow the tip that I had read last week from a different recipe, a triple ginger cookie recipe, to freeze that crystallized ginger because it is a little hard to chop up roughly when it's sort of gummy. Yeah. So that was a handy tip, and I did go ahead and do that. I preheated my oven. I lined my baking sheets. I used the food processor to cream my sugar and my butter until light and fluffy. Um, then added in the other ingredients. You'll be proud of me. I did sift. <gasps> so proud of you. Oh, it was such a tiny amount. It really, it really went very fast, that portion of the recipe. It was a tiny amount, and I mainly decided to do it because I thought it would be a good way to incorporate the ground ginger in with the spelt flour. So, yeah. Then you take your dough out of your mixer, and you gently knead in that crystallized ginger, and then roll it into, what did you call it? A squat little sausage shape? <laughs> Something like that. A squat little log. <laughs> <laughs> Wrap it in cling film and let it rest in the fridge for at least 20 minutes. At this point, I realized I had to be somewhere and my timing wasn't going to turn out. So I turned my oven off because I knew I was going to come back much later in the day and bake the cookies off. Okay. So mine chilled for much longer than 20 minutes, probably a couple of hours. Okay. When I got home, I took them out of the fridge and looked at the instruction on slicing them. Now it says slice with a sharp knife into rounds about one to two centimeters thick. Mm -hmm. I looked up the conversion for centimeters to inches, and that is uh, one centimeter is four tenths of an inch, two centimeters, eight tenths of an inch. Yeah. That's a really big slice. Well, I mean, if you think of you, you've got this log that's about eight to 10 centimeters total. So you're dividing it in 10, eight to 10. They're pretty chunky. They were thicker. Because what I was doing is I was looking at the picture that was posted with the recipe. Mm -hmm. In the picture, they're fairly large and flat. Yeah. I know that cookies melt and spread, but I guess I just was struggling to believe that these were actually going to melt and spread the way they were pictured in the photo. Gotcha. It turns out they did. Uh, you, you bake them for around 15 to 20 minutes. I checked mine at 15. They were still... How do I describe this? They had spread on the edges, but the middle had not spread yet. So okay. they were okay. probably about a third bigger than when they had started, but they still had sort of a lump in the middle. Yep. I set the timer for another two minutes, and when I went back and checked, then the middle had spread out to where it was the same level as the edges. It had those beautiful cracks on top. Yes. I removed them. It says to cool on wire racks before serving. I accidentally dropped one on the ground so I am going to say if you haven't made these yet you do really need to let them cool on the baking sheet before you try to transfer them to your wire rack 
Okay. Because they're pretty delicate. Okay. At least that was my experience. Well, I do think it's a more delicate flower. Yeah. yeah. I can tell you, dogs like spell. <laughs> and ginger. When I dropped that cookie on the ground, <laughs> my dog went to town on it, even though it was piping hot. That was my first good review that I got. <laughs> then I let them sit for a few minutes, and I had my first one, and I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was so good. It's exactly the kind of cookie that I like. And what I loved is that it was different than the cookie I had you make all the way back in episode seven. That's my soft and chewy molasses ginger cookie. That's been sort of my standard ginger cookie. Yes. I was thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be the same, but it's not. It's very different, different texture, different flavor. It uses the brown sugar instead of the molasses, different color. Yeah. All of that. Very, very different. I absolutely loved it. When my husband came home, I asked him to try one. I didn't have to ask twice. He (laughs) completely loved them, thought they were fabulous. My daughter came home. I asked her to try one. Now, keep in mind, she's not a huge ginger fan. Yeah. Since I think she does associate it with all these times we tried to give her ginger when she was feeling a bit. Oh, to settle her Yeah, so it doesn't have the best association in her mind. Yeah. But when she took a bite, she looked at me. I didn't tell her what they were. And she took a bite and she looked at me and she said, Oh, molasses. I don't know if she just associated it with my molasses cookie and she tasted the ginger and so thought they were the same. But I think I had two or three more and then I packed these into a Ziploc bag because I wanted to put them away and put them out of sight and I was getting ready to go on a trip. So I packed them in my carry-on bag and I thought, well, I'll have these. I might have one or two on the plane and then I'll have one or two to give the people that I'm going to see when I arrive at my destination. Nope. I (laughs) ate them in the car on the way to the airport. They didn't even make it to the parking garage. I loved these cookies. I did too, Andrea. I was so delighted by these little cookies. Yeah. First of all, as you said, and I'm so glad you mentioned this, We both love a chewy ginger molasses cookie, and that's a really important distinction. These do have a bit of brown sugar, but they are not a molasses ginger cookie. No. And I think that allows the ginger to shine through so nicely. They are light golden. The ginger is just chewy. It's enough ginger, but without being overwhelming. It does have a nice warming taste. The cookies are chewy. One thing I noticed my husband said this, and I could not disagree. He said they are creamy, which is a very strange review for a cookie. But actually, when you look at people talking about spelt flour, one of the things they say is it is a very creamy flour. I think it was the perfect choice for these cookies. I think it made them so different, spicy, warm. I love them too. I loved this small batch. Yes. You know, we've done several cookies like this now. In fact, we should probably put together a PDF of like our Earl Grey shortbread and our pignoli. And now these double ginger cookies, so nice, so tasty, so different. Ten lasted about ten minutes in my house. As you, I let them cool for the absolute bare bones minimum of time and then started eating them. I will say that as they got cooler, they got a little crisper. That's great to me. I also love a really crispy, snappy, store-bought ginger snap. I think we've talked about that in the past. Yes. The flavor was outstanding. I could not be happier with these. Andrea, the other thing I liked is that I rarely make a roll. I think it's called a slice and bake cookie. Yes. I think this category of cookie is called a slice and bake. I rarely make that. I'm right there with you. I was thinking that same thing to myself that I used to make 
the slice and bake regularly at holiday time oh, okay. because I was doing those decorated sugar cookies that are so prevalent, you know, during the holidays. Yes. I kind of got away from it when I stopped making those sugar cookies and doing this slice and bake made me think about my preheated 20 for 20 baking resolution of having more cookies in the freezer. So here's uh-huh. my question. Okay. If I take this recipe, and I think I might double it or triple it because it does make such a small batch. Yes. And I want to put these in the freezer. Should I put them in the freezer in the log or the roll form? Yeah. Or should I go ahead and slice them and maybe put little pieces of parchment between them? What do you think? I'd leave them in the log. Okay. Yeah. And so then I probably just have to pull it out a little bit ahead of time and let it defrost a bit before I slice them. Yes. Okay. So loyal listener Christy is a goddess when it comes to the slice and bake. Christy, if you're listening and you could weigh in, I have a very vivid memory of her pulling cookies from the freezer. Okay. And that's part of the beauty that you just slice off what you need and then you pop the rest back. Right? Yeah. I mean, I just am very excited about trying this. I so thank you for finding this recipe. I love the idea that it was a small batch. I think it was a great way to introduce our listeners to Spelt. It's really smart that it only made 10 cookies because I do believe I ate six of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Dalesford Cookery School. I'm just thrilled with this recipe. Yeah. I just am in love with Spelt flour, too. I am so fascinated by it. Yeah. Well, let's see if we're going to like einkorn flour as much as we love spelt. So this week's bake-along is einkorn hand pies. We're using a recipe from a company called Jovial. And Stefan, would you like to tell us a little bit about einkorn flour? Is that one that you're familiar with or you've heard of before? Nope, I know nothing about this one. (laughs) So hopefully I'm going to learn and love it as much as I do the spelt. Andrea, before we introduce the recipe, shall we have another dramatic reading from the Dove's Farm, this time, Icorn Flower Bag? (laughs) So excited. (laughs) All right. If you were listening to last week's episode, episode 166, you know that I gave a dramatic reading from the spelt flower bag. And now it is the icorn's turn. (laughs) Icorn, or Triticum monococcum, was the original wheat developed over 20,000 years ago. It became a diet staple across the Mediterranean because of its ability to survive on poor soils where other species of wheat fail. It eventually disappeared from fields in Roman times when other varieties of wheat became popular due to their bigger yield and easier processing. It grows on tall stalks, which are distinguished by their short, flat, two-row seed head, which enclose small grains in an inedible husk. Stone ground from wheat grain, widely used in prehistory, this flour will give taste and character to your baking. When was the last time you used an ingredient from prehistory, Andrea? I, I don't know that I ever have. Prehistory on preheated. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about this one. I also did a bit of digging on einkorn, not a dramatic reading that I can share, but just a couple <laughs> of facts that are just as interesting. Okay, okay. Just like with spelt, I want to point out up front that einkorn is not gluten-free. Okay. It has a type of gluten that is different than other types of wheat, and some people do find that it's easier to digest, but it is not gluten-free. Okay, thank you for that important reminder. Bread dough made with einkorn can be very sticky and a little tough to get used to. Cake batters can sometimes get gummy with mixing. It can be substituted cup for cup with regular whole wheat flour in some muffin pancake cakes and cookie recipes. 
However, sometimes the amount of liquid in the recipe needs to be reduced by roughly 15 to 20%. Okay. These are all tips from the Jovial Company, and this is actually where I bought my flour from. So the main thing to keep in mind with einkorn is that it absorbs liquids much slower than regular wheat. Okay. You want your dough to be nice and wet and sticky, but you don't want it to expand too much on your work surface after you do the kneading of it. So this is going to be a flour that you may want to play around with a little bit. And you know, this pie dough is so interesting as well, Andrea. You and I have done many pie doughs over the years. I don't know that I've ever had one in that in addition to the flour, you have sugar. There's a little bit of baking powder in this one. That's something that I starred. There's salt and there's the zest of a lemon uh, then in addition to, to your butter. I'm not sure I have made a pastry with lemon zest, but I love it. Yeah, I think the buttermilk pastry recipe that I used from Joy the Baker, that might have lemon Mm -hmm. zest in it. Or if it doesn't, it should, because I think that's a fabulous idea. Okay. (laughs) I do too. So this is a recipe for 24-inch hand pies. And Andrea, you and I, before we started recording, we talked about some variations we might do as you may have heard me mention on the show or in the Facebook group, it is Yorkshire rhubarb season here in the UK. So I might do a variation in making a full pie using some of that rhubarb. Andrea, do you think you will do the filling here? It's an apple filling. What are you thinking? Longtime listeners know I'm not a huge fan of apples. So I had already decided that I was going to do pears instead of apples. Great. Stefan, for new listeners, do you want to tell us a little bit about that Yorkshire rhubarb? Because I know the first time you told me about it and how it was harvested, I almost didn't believe you. I thought you were trying to trick me. Yes, I love telling this story. I will tell it as many times as you would like. (laughs) So Yorkshire rhubarb is very a young harvest. It's a very early harvest. The reason that Yorkshire rhubarb is so extraordinary and early is that it is forced. So it develops a very more sweet flavor, I would say, than conventionally grown rhubarb. But the first time I encountered this was at our beloved Borough Market. Mm. And it's so very early in the season and, you know, wintertime's kind of drab. And there's that bright, almost neon rhubarb. And I was so excited. And I took it to the cashier. And he said, oh, yes, you know, this is the Yorkshire rhubarb harvested by candlelight. (laughs) And I thought, come on, man. Like, right. And sure enough, he was absolutely right. He was telling me the God's honest truth. It is harvested by candlelight. It is among my most favorite things to eat in this country because I love rhubarb but I never can have fresh rhubarb at the end of January in the states at least not the part of the states that I'm from so I am eating my weight in Yorkshire rhubarb right now (laughs) I know rhubarb is the thing that I am always most excited to see in my market it usually comes in late March early April yeah it's always that sign that spring is coming I am not going to have it in time for this recipe obviously here we are in the beginning of March But like I said, I think I'm going to substitute pears. So you ran through the pie crust ingredients. For the filling ingredients, it suggests four tart apples, and I'm going to substitute the pears. Half a cup of raisins, obviously I'm going to skip that. Uh, But you're welcome to try it if you'd like. Some water, some honey, some cinnamon, and some nutmeg. So just basically your typical, you know, fruit apple filling. I think you can do your variations there however you'd like. Yeah, I think we're using this recipe this week as a jumping off point, using this crust and this amazing acorn flour, and Mm -hmm. then kind of going our own way as far as the fillings. But I am really looking forward to how this one is going to turn out. I'm super excited to try it. I did attend an alternative flour class that 
gave me some introduction to some new flowers and we were supposed to have einkorn flower but at the last moment I think for whatever reason the instructor couldn't get any and so we used emmer flower instead so Mm. einkorn is something that is new for me and I've not tasted it and I've not baked with it before so I'm very excited about this recipe new for us but not the world 20,000 years old indeed not (laughs) Well, remember, we will have links to all of the recipes we've talked about today. That was the Dalesford Double Ginger Spelt Cookie and today's Bake Along, which is the Icorn Hand Pies from Jovial. We will put those on our website in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 167, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, it's that time. Let's don our lab coats and safety goggles and step into the kitchen. Time to start talking about the science of flour which makes me think we might be pulling into the Intimidation Station. (laughs) Yes, that is certainly true for me. There's so many things to consider when discussing that essential baking ingredient, flour. Have no fear. You and I both know we're not alone in our desire to conquer the basics of food science and still have some fun in the kitchen. As usual, the best way for me to learn about something is to try and teach it to other people. So consider this a surface dive into flour science. Professional bakers and food science experts, please be gentle with me. (laughs) Okay, first stop on our route, Hydration Station. I belong to a few bread baking groups, and the minute they mention hydration, I panic. But this simply refers to the ratio of liquid as compared to flour in a recipe. Okay, I can handle that. Hydration is the percentage of liquid in a dough. That actually makes sense. Although, why do I care about this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, hydration and something called baker's math or a baker's percentage is actually super helpful. Hmm. Essentially, it's a way you can write a recipe and refer to the ingredients by weight. So you can use baker's math to easily convert a recipe into different weights like pounds or ounces or grams. Aha, my kind of math. It has been a challenge for the two of us baking in two different parts of the world using two different systems of measurement. I'm definitely more inclined to bake from recipes or websites that offer a choice between imperial and metric measurements. So shout out to King Arthur Flour and the Food Network, among others, for doing this automatically. Yeah, that really helps us out a lot. If you want to try calculating a baker's percentage in one of your recipes all by yourself, I'll include a link to a tutorial in the show notes so you can do that. In the meantime, let's talk about what you can use this for. Hydration percentage levels help you predict the texture of the crumb of your baked good. Like whether it's going to be light and airy or dense and chewy? Exactly. By looking at the percentages, it's easier to tell if a recipe is drier or sweeter or saltier than another recipe. It also gives you some clues as to what the final product will look like. Well, that sounds super helpful. All right, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's start with bagels. A great place to start. Bagels are one of the most dense doughs with a low hydration, usually around 50 to 57%. They are also one of the stiffest doughs, and they need a lot of kneading to get all that flour incorporated. Luckily, doughs with a low hydration are usually not very sticky, so all that kneading won't be too messy. Remember we made those amazing bagels in episode 100 from Alexander Stafford? Amazing bagels? Don't you mean those very good bagels, easy-ish too? (laughs) (laughs) I so love that recipe name. I get what you're saying, though, that while dense texture was very good in a bagel, I wouldn't want it in a lighter bread like a focaccia. Right. A focaccia bread usually has a 65 to 80% hydration. 
it's usually mixed by folding rather than kneading. Doughs with a higher hydration are usually very sticky. Okay, so now that I understand hydration, I'm a flour expert, right? Well, not so fast. We can't talk flour science without mentioning flour protein content and gluten. I know that different types of flour absorb water differently because they contain different amounts of gluten. That's right. A recipe using one type of flour usually needs to be adjusted when you're using a different type or even a different brand of flour. Hmm. And that's why we're doing this segment, to make sure we understand why using different types of flour results in different end results for our baked goods. I think every baker has a disaster story about substituting flour, don't you? Yeah, I know from personal experience that 100% whole wheat flour cannot be substituted one for one in my favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe. Unless I want hockey pucks. I've had most success when I sub a little at a time. For example, if the recipe calls for two cups of plain flour, I'll start with half cup of wholemeal and one and a half cups of plain, see how that goes, and work up or down from there the next batch. I had my ratios all worked out in the U.S., but I had to recalibrate once I got to the U.K. as the flours are milled from different wheat. The wholemeal I use here, for example, is much heavier than the brand I used in Seattle. It's a good reminder that weighing ingredients is so much more exact than measuring them. Yes, get that scale out, people. It gets even trickier when you're subbing non-wheat flours like sorghum, buckwheat, or teff. Each time you substitute a flour, you're going to change the final color, flavor, and texture of your baked good. I found a great chart from Bob's Red Mill that gives the percentage guidelines for substituting. According to Bob, you can substitute spelt or rye flour one for one in a recipe that calls for white or whole wheat flour. Well, Andrea, as you heard me mention just a few moments ago, I'm having a love affair with spelt flour. Yes. I recently subbed it one-to-one in my go-to pizza dough recipe from Better Homes and Gardens, which I made with 100% spelt, and let me tell you, it's my new favorite. Oh, I love that. Now, with other alternative flours, you'll want to scale down and not substitute one for one. For example, buckwheat and oat flour should be subbed in at about a 20% ratio. Well, my husband recently made his famous whole wheat pancakes, but he stole some of my acorn flour, (laughs) which we just talked about for this week's Bake Along. He subbed it at about this ratio, and it was perfect. In fact, he may have been taking a page from Alice Medrich's book, Flavor Flowers, because she suggests experimenting by subbing alternative flours first in pancakes or waffles, since they're flat and don't require much structure. I love that suggestion. Back to the protein percentages. The higher the protein, the sturdier and chewier the end result will be, whereas lower protein leads to a flakier result. Let's start with the workhorse in all of our pantries, all-purpose or plain flour as we call it here in the UK. All-purpose flour usually has about 10 to 12% protein, and it's made by milling both high and low protein wheat. The wheat is separated into three parts. The bran, the germ, and the endosperm, but only the endosperm is ground. All-purpose flour is aptly named because it's flexible enough for all your baking. It's sturdy enough for bread, but not too strong for a tender cookie or our beloved brownies. My all-purpose staple is that red bag of all-purpose flour from King Arthur, which clocks in at 11.7% protein. Now compare that to their whole wheat flour, which has 13% protein. Whole wheat is made by milling all parts of the wheat, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. So you end up with a denser product and a wheatier taste. If you're new to wheat flours and ready to experiment, start by substituting 25% whole wheat for all purpose. I've had great success with the 25% substitution in all of my breads and pizza doughs. 
So if a recipe calls for four cups of flour, I substitute with three cups of all-purpose and one cup of whole wheat. Some other wheat flours you may have in your pantries include cake flour, which has 5 to 8% protein and makes a very fine and tender crumb. Not only does it have a lower protein content than all-purpose, it's also milled finer than all-purpose. Also pastry flour, which comes in at around 8% protein. Here's a handy tip. You can make your own pastry flour just by mixing two parts all-purpose flour with one part cake flour. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got bread flour or strong flour, which has a whopping 12 to 15% protein content. I've had great success substituting strong flour to make many of Alexandra Stafford's no-need breads, and I love the results. Savvy listeners will notice we haven't even mentioned gluten-free flours, nut flours, and bleached versus unbleached flours. Those are topics we're saving for another day. But in the meantime, we hope you'll start experimenting with the flours we mentioned, or perhaps some we haven't, and share your results with us. I know we've got some professional bakers and food scientists in our listeners group, so I'm hoping they'll weigh in with tips and lessons learned. Send us an email at host at preheatedpodcast.com or drop a post into our Facebook listeners group. And many thanks to Bob's Red Mill, King Arthur Flour, Crafty Baking, and Alice Medrick for educating us on all of these flowers. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning, and next week, we'll find out if our icorn pies deserve a standing ovation. Then, grab your pot of gold and thank your lucky stars. With St. Patrick's Day on the horizon, we've got a soda bread recipe using another new-to-us ancient grain, emmer. Finally, we'll travel the globe to discuss flour around the world and the many differences you may encounter depending on your location. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Yeah. yeah.